spookier than usual, right? Um, we'll talk about even why that is the way that it is this morning. Um, hello, hello. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. Super happy to be with you this morning because we are starting a new series. Always exciting when we start a new series and just kind of see what God has for us. I, of course, um, you'll be glad to know I do prepare for these things and uh, read a lot in advance and have some ideas of where a series might go and some emphases for us given where we're at. But then God just tends to do a thing um, in the midst of it and brings a clarity to why he has us where we are in any given teaching series. And I'm excited um, to kind of discover that with you to see what God wants to do in our midst. Um, and so, uh, so we're going to do a little bit of an intro to the Ten Commandments today. Uh, I kind of want to set the context of them. And then over the next number of weeks, we'll, we'll just kind of go uh, one by one. I think there's one week where we're combining two of them, but we'll just tend to go kind of bit by bit through what do each of these commandments mean. And so one of the, just the other thing that I'll say by way of introduction is one of the, one of the little rhythms that I'm not sure anyone else has noticed, but I feel like is worth pointing out because it is how I've, and the elders have begun to think through our teaching here, is one of the things that we're trying to do is that every fall we try and dig into kind of a Christian basics, kind of returning to fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so uh, when we began this mindset a few years back, even like pre-COVID, we did the Apostles' Creed, if you remember. We did the Lord's Prayer last year in this. We did the, we're doing the Ten Commandments. Obviously, this year, we'll probably do like the Beatitudes at some point, just kind of foundational stuff of the Christian faith. And then normally in that winter, spring is when we go through a longer series, kind of going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And that's what we tend to do here. But the fall is a little bit unique in that we're trying to do these intro to Christian basics kind of stuff. So that's also part of the mindset here. In fact, Martin Luther who was uh, a significant figure in the, if you're familiar with any kind of history, not just church history, but the Reformation, probably have heard of that. Martin Luther was a big deal in the Reformation. He's uh, known as saying that if you understand the Ten Commandments properly, and the emphasis there is properly, what's going on here, some of the context that I'll set today, some of what this is doing, you can understand the entire Christian story which is a pretty bold take because I think that we think of the Ten Commandments as like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like very basic stuff that we would all vaguely agree on that you should or shouldn't do. But no, properly understood, the Ten Commandments have a way of opening up the rest of the biblical story. And so I want to set some of that context today, and I'm excited to do it. Um, before I do that, I do have one other announcement that now I'm, I'm looking at this little note that I made myself so that I wouldn't forget, which is we do have a date for the men's retreat, which is very exciting. Hey, our venerable deacon of men, um, Chris Rodonovich, who's right here, give a little wave. Um, he was able to secure us uh, a place this week. We're going back to the deaconry for those of you who have been on a men's retreat before. The dates are November 11th and 12th, November 11th and 12th. It's a Friday and a Saturday. We will have way more information about this in, uh, in weeks to come. But because we we're able to secure that literally as of Friday, I felt like it was worth giving you those dates. Okay, men? November 11th and 12th. All right? Let's dive in here. I'm going to start with what Kate just read for us, um, because this is what directly precedes the actual giving of the Ten Commandments. And so this is a little bit of a different part of the biblical story than, than we've been in for a while. It's been, it's been a while since we dealt with this part 
of the history of the scriptures. And so this is Israel, the people of God in the desert are given the Ten Commandments. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens before that that's important to understand. That's actually mentioned here in this text. So we're talking about Israel, which are these people who were originally um, given this promise through their first forefather, Abraham, that God would make them a special nation, that God would have a particular relationship with them, and then through them that God would bring his blessing to the entire world. As that story kind of unfurls, into the, the other, what are called the patriarchs uh, in the scriptures. So figures like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We end up with, uh, through kind of wild circumstances, we end up with these very people, with this family that God made this promise to, in slavery in Egypt. Give me sort of like a very overextended nod if that part is kind of familiar to you. Like you're familiar with that, okay, Prince of Egypt, um, maybe this is where Disney helps us, right? Um, and so that's the story that we're dealing with. God comes to those people, Israel, and says, as they are in slavery, he says, look, this isn't the end of your story. I still am going to be faithful to my promise to you. I'm still going to have a special relationship with you, and through you, I will bring blessing to the entire world where humanity has brought the curse of sin and death and all of these things. And he does this through a representative figure whose name is Moses. Very good. Okay, good. We're tracking here. We're tracking. If you're not, that's okay. That's why you're here. You're here to learn, which is great. Um, and so Moses becomes this very key figure in God delivering his people from slavery. And so from that moment where God reestablishes his promise, you have Moses going up to Pharaoh and saying, um, as I was taught as a kid, oh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, Oh, some of you know it's good. We're dwindling in who's catching my references, but that's okay. Okay, let my people go. Who? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a song that I sung. This is what happens when you grow up in church. Um, but uh, he goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, absolutely not. And then God sends what? Good. The plagues. How many plagues? Ten plagues upon Egypt to get their attention. Be like, hey, you're messing with the wrong guy here is basically what's going on there. Um, eventually, Pharaoh gets the message. Pharaoh's like, okay, like, no more of this. This is way too much. God makes a promise, says the last plague is going to be this, this massive destruction of the firstborns of Egypt, very dramatic, very um, kind of wild scene, very warlike scene. But God gives his people a promise and says, if you put blood on your door, I will what? I will pass over. This is very impressive. Um, I will pass over your house. And so this is where uh, the Jewish people get the celebration of Passover from. So we have the Passover event. Um, the people of God are literally freed. They get to go out. Pharaoh says, go, leave. This is too much. Um, clearly, your, your God is no one to mess with. So they leave. Brings them all the way to the Red Sea. Now we have Charlton Heston, who stands in for us as Moses. And Charlton Heston, um, as Moses, parts the Red Sea, right? Um, and the people of God go through. And then Pharaoh's army pursues them through that open Red Sea. And God recloses it and the armies of Pharaoh are destroyed. And then you have the people. This is part of the story. We're getting really close to where we are. Then you have the people um, end up in the desert, but they're on their way to what? The promised land. Good. They're on their way to promised land. What's very, very interesting about this part of the story is, and I should have, I just realized, I should have provided a map for this. I will the, the next time that we talk through this. 
But if you look at where Egypt is and you look at where the promised land is, it's a very straight line. It's sort of a, it's very much like a Philadelphia to New York City kind of line. It's this sort of northeasterly, very clear cut. You just take I-95 north and, and you're going to get there pretty quickly. Instead, what's fascinating is that God takes his people south. That's the direction that they go after the Red Sea, to the point where when we get to this part of the story, which ends up at this place called Mount Sinai, you're, um, let's stick with that analogy, you're sort of in Washington, D.C. at this point. You're way south, you're a little bit east, but you, you've by far gone, gone south as the predominant direction. So what's interesting here is that God's people have found themselves on the other side of this great act of deliverance, and yet they also find themselves farther from their intended destination than when they first set out. We are also told that they find themselves in a more destitute situation in terms of their hunger, of their thirst, to the point where they are saying to Moses, oh, that we could go back and enjoy the food that we enjoyed in Egypt, which is wild, right? Because what was their reality in Egypt? They're enslaved in that place. And they're saying, Moses, this is wild. Why are we in Washington, D.C. when we could have just gone straight across? I just want you to hold on to that tension. That's the place where God shows up to them. They're farther from their destination than when they first set out. And they are in, at least in their own assessment of the situation, they're in a worse off position than even before their deliverance. And into that place, this scene happens. On the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So they've been wandering for three months now. They've been walking around for three months, going south, Probably anyone with any sense of direction, the backseat drivers in the crowd are like, Moses, where are we going? What are you doing? You probably should, you probably should right? Waze is freaking out at this point. Waze is like, turn left, turn left, turn, changing route, right? Turn left, what are we doing? Um, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. This is, this is what they did. They, were, they would walk for a little bit, and then they would create camp. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. So Moses is their representative. He's the one who gets to go and talk to God. This has be become a regular rhythm in the three months that they've been wandering. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, that's, that's one of the ways that God addresses uh, Israel, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I'm just going to stop there. So first of all, God is reminding the people. You're on the other side of a great act of deliverance. He's reminding them 
The goal of this was to bring you to myself, which is God's ultimate goal for all of us, that we would be brought to himself. And in some ways, what he's saying, in spite of circumstances, my intentions for you have not changed. They have not changed at all. He says, you are still to be for me a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that Moses was to speak on God's behalf to the people of Israel. God's intentions for them have not changed. He still wants them to be his treasured possession, relational language there. This beautiful sense that they are chosen by God, that they are loved by God, that they are seen by God. A kingdom of priests, this royal destiny that they have, that they will reign and rule, and that they will be a holy nation, a nation unlike any other nation. And you have to feel some of the absurdity of this given the circumstances that they find themselves in. They are literally in the middle of the desert. They are hungry, they are thirsty, they are longing for a situation, an unthinkably oppressed situation, feels better than where they're at right now. Into that, God says, all of this is still true. I have not wavered in my promise. I want you to jump down with me, um, and Tim, if you could pull this off, that would be great, to Exodus 19, verse 16. I didn't tell you this. I'm sorry. But you should have your Bibles out anyway. So I just want to read for you what then happens. So God says, get the people ready, because I'm going to speak directly to them. They're to set themselves as, as holy. They're to show how seriously they take the words of God. So in Exodus 19:16, it says this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount, on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. That's wild stuff, right? <laughs> You've got to... You've got to feel some of the intensity of this, right? Like this happened, right? You've got to remember this happened. This isn't Lord of the Rings... Um, right, if you're, re you're watching Rings of Power or whatever, right, like this sounds like something out of, this is real life. This really happened to a real group of people and you have to feel the suddenness of it, the shock of it, and the overwhelming nature of it, right? There is smoke, there is fire, there are peals of lightning. Moses talks to God and it says, God answers him in thunder. I don't know what that means other than it must have been terrifying. The image that you get is that the people are told, hey, tomorrow morning we're going to go out and we're going to hear from God. And the people are like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And so they do what they're supposed to do, and then they get up on that day and they're like, ooh, today's the day we're going to hear from God, right? Like, here we are in the middle of nowhere. We haven't heard anything from God. And they're like, Moses gets to hear from God, but I don't. And they wake up and they look out and they see this scene. And all of a sudden it says a trumpet starts to blast. Not from one of them, a trumpet that somehow is under God's control. And we're told the trumpet just gets louder and louder. It's like, right? Like this is what's going on as you walk out of your home on that day. 
I tried to find the closest thing that I could. This is the image. This is a real image. This is like a real mountain with lava coming out of it. Okay, it's a little, it's a little hard to see. This, this, so this is the only thing that can replicate this. Is This is a volcano exploding while there's also electricity in the air. And so you have smoke coming from the lava, but then you also have it being met with lightning. This is what they wake up to that morning. Is this, this otherworldly phenomenon packed together into one and thunder. And they get a sense that God is speaking, but he's speaking in thunder, whatever that means. All of the things that happen here we see again and again in the biblical narrative, often different combos of it, very seldom as many elements of it together here. But this is what happens when God shows up in real time and space. Thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and loud trumpet blasts. This is the arrival of God. This is a reminder, I can't help but think, to the people that in spite of their circumstances, which suggest otherwise, they are still dealing with the one who brought Pharaoh to his knees. Okay? In spite of what circumstances say around them, in spite of their own evaluation of whether or not what God is doing makes sense, if you were to peel back the layer of the reality such as they see it and encounter the true and living God, this is what you're dealing with. This enormity of power, this strength of, of solidness, right? Like part of what's being communicated here is that God is overwhelming the mountain. The mountain can barely stand up. The mountain is shaking because there is something more solid, more sure, greater, grander than the mountain itself that is descending upon it. This is, behold, your God, Israel. And it is no less true, Jacob's well, that if we could tear back a little bit of the veil of reality, that in spite of our circumstances, in spite of my evaluation of how God is doing, managing my life, this is the one that we're dealing with. This is the one that we're addressing in our poultry, half-hearted, half-baked prayers. This is the one that we believe at times has abandoned us and has given up on his promises to us. And every now and then, it seems like the people of God need to be shaken up and reminded, no, 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 I am still the one and only. I am still the one who is and was and always will be. I do not change. God and Moses have a little interaction. Then we finally get to Exodus 20, which in my Bible is labeled the Ten Commandments. So here we go. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he heads into what we know as the Ten Commandments. I think it's really interesting that God shows up in, in, in that phenomenon, in this storm, in this um, lightning and thunder. Because I think one of the reasons why that's, that's the experience that he wants these people to have 
just prior to the, him then speaking these words to them, is because we tend to lack the ability or the willingness, maybe, to hold in tension two beautiful realities, one of which is the enormous otherness of God. Hold it, the, use the biblical language, the holiness of God. The, 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 the otherness, capital O, of God is, is everything that that image, that that experience communicates. He's so good. He's so different than us. He's so powerful. He is so all-wise. He's so all-knowing that we just don't have a category for it. And so instead, we need overwhelming natural phenomena in order, in order to even begin to take in the enormity of who God is, the holiness, the righteousness, the perfection of who God is. Right? Like I can't help but think of one of the other times where God shows up, um, like really shows up to a human being, and it's in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah is, is given this, um, this experience where he goes into the very throne room of God, and we're told that all he sees is the hem of God's garment. He sees this little bit of God, and he's completely undone by it. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What could possibly save me? This is always, the, this is the human response normally to lesser spiritual beings than God. This is how people react when angels show up. Let alone the one who hundreds of millions of angels bow to and worship. And yet in that very scene, we have the holiness, the otherness, the enormity, the strength, the beauty, the perfection of God that, that in some ways just crushes the human soul and leaves us in a, woe is me. But then beautifully in Isaiah 6, we have an angel who comes and takes something from the altar and actually touches Isaiah and says, this, this is from God himself. This is provision from God himself to make you clean so that you can stand and not be undone in this moment. You see, always with the holiness and perfection and power of God, we need to hold his grace and love and mercy and goodness towards us, that he is for us. That's what I love about the image of a storm. That's why we went with this as our bump video, and I want you to remember this every week, is because storms are terrifying, especially when there's peals of lightning and thunder. But if we did not have storms, and sometimes we miss this as a non-agrarian, you know, most of us, if you have a garden, it's just a little something you're doing in the backyard. It's not how you live. But every good farmer knows that peals of lightning and thunder are good news if what you so deeply desire is actual growth, if you need it for life. And so I love the image of a storm because it is terrifying and because there is a sense in which we quake underneath it. And yet storms are the necessary precursor to life and growth in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. And I think that what God is getting at here, if you'll allow me to extend the image just a little bit, is to say, I know that your situation feels like a storm, and I know you want to run and hide, and I know you want to say whatever's behind this is terrifying. But this will leave. Storms end. And what they leave in their wake is the necessary ingredients of life. That's exactly what goes on here. Because what's given, what's left, when this incredible phenomena, when all of these things packed together leave, are these Ten Commandments. 
What's left? It's as though in all of that storm, everything was centered on the delivery of these necessary ingredients for life that we're going to work through called the Ten Commandments. Why are they necessary ingredients for life? Three things that I want to say by way of introduction to our series. Three things. One is that the Ten Commandments reveal to us who God is. They reveal to us the character of who God is. Second, the Ten Commandments reveal to us God's purposes for the world, his good purposes for the world. And three, and maybe most importantly, the Ten Commandments define for us what the true good life, what a life well lived, what a truly free life looks like. Okay, Those are the three things that I want to introduce us with and then to go back to as we go through this series. First is that the Ten Commandments reveal to us who God is, his nature. What's interesting is that if you look at, at Exodus 20 and all around it, these are never actually called the Ten Commandments. Um, that's not language that, that comes from the scriptures. That's something that we've given them. And in fact, if you flip over a couple of books with me to Deuteronomy, so it goes, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, to Deuteronomy 4, I want you to put something in here because we're, we're going to revisit this, but for now I just want you to go to Deuteronomy 4, verse 13. This is a summary of the events that, that we just read about in Exodus 19. And Moses says, And God declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Do you have a little number next to Ten Commandments there? What does it say down bottom? Follow your footnote. Ten words is actually what we're told here. We've turned it into commandments. It's ten words. Ten words is, is actually the proper way to talk about these. In fact, the... Uh, the $5 word, if you want to impress your friends, because I'm sure this will impress them. Uh, they ask, you know, randomly, because this is what your conversations probably sound like, like, what's your current teaching series at your church? Say the Ten Commandments, but it's really the Decalogue. So deca means ten, right? That's the, that's the Greek word for ten. And then log, logos, means word. So the ten words, deca, log. Okay, that's how your fancy theologians, biblical scholars, talk about the Ten Commandments. It's the Decalogue. And, and the reason that's important is not just because it sounds fancy, but because Ten Commandments and Ten Words are two different things. Ten Commandments are very clearly what it sounds like. Like, you got to do these. This is what God expects of you. These are the rules. Boom. The Ten Words is more accurate because especially in this time and in the surrounding cultures, the giving of the law by a king would have not just been primarily, it wouldn't have even primarily been about the people and what was expected to them. It was, which it was, it, it absolutely was that, and, and don't get me wrong, these are commandments. But what it really was, and why these would have been called words rather than commandments as kind of the major note of them, is it was the revealing of the heart of the king. It was telling you what kind of king you were dealing with. Think of it this way, or this, this is how I thought of it. I don't know if this is helpful to you. I distinctly remember that when I was growing up, there was one substitute teacher that we would have 
that when she would walk into the room, the entire room would groan and be like, ugh. I won't say her name. She might be listening. Um, but we're all like, ugh. Why? Because the first thing that she would do is she would just start writing rules on the board. You will not talk unless I call on you, right? Like, you will raise your hand at all times. There will be no exchanging. And, and just rule after rule after rule. And by the time she was done, you're kind of like, these next 42 minutes or whatever a class was back in those days, like, this is not going to be fun. And guess what? It wasn't. It never was. Like, she was the sub who came in, wrote these rules, and they were the worst rules. Now, it wasn't because of the rules, because we had other subs. Like, it's actually a good practice as a sub to come in and say, like, hey, here's what I expect of you. And there's one other sub she would use for ours. She'd be like, all that I expect is respect, um, whatever, responsibility, and something else. And we'd be like, recycle, because we were so funny. And, um, and I remember her, but we all loved her because her rules revealed something about, like, hey, this, this is what I expect of you. If this is what happens, we're, we're going to have a good time. And normally, those, those were great, right? It wasn't the rules themselves. It was the nature of those rules. That's what these 10 words would have been experienced as. This is part of why they tremble, is they're like, oh no, we're gonna really find out who we're dealing with now. And so as we go through them, I want you to see over time how these, because I think that we think like, oh, the 10 commandments, I know those. Those are like the things that every culture everywhere would agree on. You don't murder, you don't steal people's stuff, you don't lie, you know, like these really, no, 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 no. We're gonna go a little bit slower to show how especially in that time, in that surrounding culture, these would have really leapt out at the people and would have very clearly signaled to them, whoa, this is a king unlike any king that we've ever heard of. In fact, turn back just a few verses in Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 says this. By the way, Deuteronomy, a little Bible lesson for you, Deutero, uh, duo, right? You hear that word in there? Uh, is, is the number two, is basically the word for second. And then uh, namas is the word for law. Deuteron- Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. It's basically Moses at the end of his life going back and retelling all the events that happen in Exodus and Numbers. If you've ever wondered why there's so much overlap, um, or even why this text is overlapped. You're like, why is this in Deuteronomy, but that's in Exodus? This is just the second telling. This is an old man at the end of his life writing his memoirs is basically what Deuteronomy is. And so this is his remembrance of uh, some of what happened in Exodus 19. So this is Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 says this. God said, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight. Oh, no, 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 this is Moses telling them, sort of recounting, like, this is why I want you to obey the law. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Isn't that cool? We take it totally for granted. Why? Because we largely sit on the foundation of Western civilization, which is largely built on Judeo-Christian law and understanding of right and wrong. You got to realize when this was first handed down, utterly revolutionary in that world, to the point where Moses fully expects that to the extent that they are obedient to this law, the world will look in and say, whoa, 
Now that's a people who are wise and understanding. That's a people with a God who really loves them and cares for them. Who, who is a God who is so near, who when you call upon him, draws near? Whoa, 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 this is different than anything we've seen, which gets us into the second thing that I want to say about the Ten Commandments. So if the first thing is, it's meant to reveal who God is to us. Call it a, I like what one theologian calls it. They call it a, a, a personal manifesto that God gives. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. These are my values, right? We, we talk about values are big, especially if, you, if you're in a corporate environment. What are the values of our company? What do we prioritize? What are the non-negotiables for us in terms of what we think are important? That's what the Decalogue is. That's what these 10 words are. What they also are, though, is a glimpse into God's purposes overall in the world. You see, because it would be a misunderstanding of the intent of the Ten Commandments to say they only exist so that God's people might live in a certain way and be happy and be at peace and have, you know, civil harmony in their midst or something. No, the Ten Commandments don't just exist for God's people, for the ones that they were directly given to. They also are part of, call it, part of God's mission in the world. That God has a mission in the world. And the Ten Commandments are one of the primary ways that he is setting about accomplishing that mission in the world. You heard it there in Deuteronomy 4. God gives these words and then says, to the extent that this is the manner in which you conduct yourselves, the world will look in and not only say, wow, what a wise and great people, but they will have the instinct to say, these people did not do this themselves. They were given this by a God unlike any other God. God is reminding them that when he spoke this promise to Abraham, that they would be a treasured people for him, that they would be chosen unlike any other group of people in the world, that they would have God's pleasure and presence with them in a way that no other nation would have, that there was a so that attached to it. And the so that was so that through you, all the people groups, all the nations of this world might be blessed. It was never solely about God's people. It was about God's people becoming, let me read this, like this language. The Ten Commandments, the function of the Ten Commandments is to produce a people who are in their daily lives a sign, a signal, and a witness that God has not left the world to its own devices. Let me read that again. The function of the Ten Commandments is to produce a people who are in our daily lives, in their daily lives then and in our obedience to it now, a sign, a signal, and a witness that God has not left the world to its own devices. That's Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite New Testament theologians. That this is to produce a kind of people that the world would look in and want in on, right? It's to create that dynamic of, you know, who was it? Tiny Tim in... in Christmas carol where, you know, you're walking around and you hear this, this joy and then you, maybe a Scrooge who did this, and then you sort of, uh, you know, clear out the frost in the window and you look in and you say, oh, that that would be my experience of Christmas dinner or whatever, right? That's, you're all looking at me like, what are you talking about? Just go with it. You know what I'm saying. Um, 
But that dynamic, right, where you look in on the, on the manner of life, on the quality of life that is being experienced, on the love, on the harmony, on the forgiveness, on the goodness of a people, and you say, I want in on that. I want what they have. How many of us to this day would say that one of the primary reasons why we ultimately put our faith in Jesus is because we met a group of people who were living out the realities what it means to be the people of God. And we said, whatever that is, I want in on that. Because I just haven't been around a group of people who relate to one another the way that you do. And if the source of that is this God that you're talking about, that must be a God unlike anything else that this world offers. See, there's this, uh, the, the fancy word that we would use for it, our our particular network, our, the movement that we're a part of, talks a lot about um, missional theology, the mission of God. There is a missional aspect to the Ten Commandments because they're given by a missional God, right? That's part of the revealing of who he is, is that God says, I'm not just about my own. I'm about my own for the sake of the world. That's who I am. That's part of what you get here in the Decalogue. reveals the character of God. It's a personal manifesto of who God is. It hints at the mission of God, that this is not just about his own people. And then third, it defines the good life. The most important thing, I think, to understand about the Ten Commandments is that they come after God's deliverance. They come after the liberation of his people. The plagues, Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army, even the provision of manna in their travels, all of that precedes, comes before God saying, and now this is how thou shalt live. This is the all-important sequence of Christian faith. It is not, I obey, therefore God accepts me. I obey, therefore God will save me. It is, God has saved me, therefore I obey. I am accepted, I am chosen, I have been brought to God himself, therefore I obey. That difference is something that every human heart wrestles with. Because we are born to believe that everything in life is earned. That there can't be a, good, a God so good, there can't be a God so merciful that he would sequence my salvation in that order. It's got to be, because I know my own heart, and I know the hearts of everyone around me, and I don't accept until you prove yourself. I'm not going to save you unless you're worthy of it. Could there be a God who says, I save you in spite of your unworthiness, and then I make you worthy? Come on. Yahweh, the liberator of his people, wants his people to stay free. Yahweh, the liberator of his people, wants his people to stay free. It wasn't such a weird two-word phrase I was tempted to name this series this, How to Stay Free, right? 
Sounds like some great 70s, uh, you know, hippie culture stuff, right? Like, how to stay free, baby. Um, I wonder how many of us struggle to believe that's what God's law is. It's how to stay free, right? This, this is the exact language that the Apostle Paul uses throughout his letters. He says, you've been freed. Why return again to a yoke of slavery? What's he picking up there? He's picking up the story of Israel. He's saying, yeah, I know. This is how it goes. You're freed by God. And then you want to go back to the very same thing. We're supposed to feel the utter tragedy, irony, devastation of a freed people. Now in the very presence of God saying, the food was really good back in Egypt. And yet what Paul does is he spiritualizes that. And he says, that's the language of all of our hearts. Yeah, I've been saved. I've been won over. I've been freed. I've been called to God. But ah, my former way of living was really fun. And Paul says, was it? Was it? Look around you. Remember your story. Remember where you were. Remember how you felt in that place, the emptiness. Look around you at a culture that has gone nuts on the things that we think are the good life. And ask yourself, do I feel like I'm surrounded by freedom? It is now cliche to say that we are the most privileged, the most technologically advanced, the most quickly access, quickest access any human culture has ever had. And yet we are so utterly alone and depressed and lost. And yet we, even as the people of God, can say, but maybe that's better. What? Freedom is not doing whatever we want. It's becoming what we are intended to be. Freedom is not doing whatever we want. It's becoming what we are intended to be. A fish is not free when it does whatever it wants. A fish is not free when it decides, I've always wanted to ride the subway. So just let me ride the subway, right? When is a fish free? When it is in the environment and doing what it was created to do. An acorn is most free when it is put in the soil in which it will grow and becomes the tree that it was created to be. Not when it says, but I like my acorn status. I just really like, you know, being plopped out on the ground. We're heading into fall, right? No, no, no. An acorn's freedom is defined by a certain manner of growth into its intended purpose. The human machine is the exact same way. Freedom is not doing whatever you want. Freedom is being in the environment that you were created for, doing what you were created to do. Guess who gets to decide that? Guess who writes the owner's manual on your car? The people who made it. You don't want me to write your owner's manual. Believe you me. So your carburetor. Here's what you do with a carburetor. Um, right? I know nothing about cars. I know less about the complex realities of how to thrive as a human being, understanding all of the ethical implications of every decision that I make every day. And yet I am more confident in that area than I am with cars, even though I know less over here. You hear what I'm saying? This is why we need a word from outside of us. 
This is why we need an authority from outside of us to speak and to say, this is what freedom actually looks like. In spite of your own evaluation of it, in spite of your own frustration with it, in spite of your own little quibbles with it, this is what freedom actually looks like, is living in the way that I'm telling you to live. Living in, living in light of my values, living in light of who I am, living in light of what matters to me. That's what your creator is saying. True freedom always requires clearly communicated boundaries and constraints. True freedom always requires clearly communicated boundaries and constraints. Again, I've taken a lot of flack for this in my home over the last couple weeks, but I am one of those drivers who I could be going around the block. My family is rolling their eyes at me right now, and I will put on waves, okay? I drive my son to the same school every day. I'm putting on waves. I go to the little ballpark, and you know, where I take my other little guy twice a week, I'm putting on waves. Why do I do that? Because you just never know. Because you never know when there's... Who said amen? Yes, Rob Richardson. Yes. My guy, look at that. Any, anyone else willing to admit? Yes, Janet. Yes. Let the people say yes, Lord. Thank you. Woo! This is... Take that. Because, right? What's the point? Because you are most free when you're working within the constraints that are presented to you. That's what Waze helps you do, is you might not know the constraints that are ahead of you. You might not know that there's construction today on a road that you've never seen construction, though you've lived in the same town for 20 years. But Waze is aware of that constraint, and it's going to take you around it and provide a better path than you just doing whatever you want. And the further you are from home, the more you're going to need that direction because you're on unfamiliar territory. And in the confusion of a cultural moment like we're in, in the confusion of this moment of reckoning for the church and all that, it's time for us to listen up again. It's time for us to allow God to decide how we get to live because he's aware of the constraints and the obstacles. He's aware of what's behind us and he's aware of what's ahead of us. And obeying him is better than believing that what true freedom is, is, no, I'm going to figure this out. I've got this. That's what the law is. John Scalambro, who you guys uh, have heard preach here, many of you know John. Um, He's actually, he said this when he preaches, is uh, he and I will often uh, preach the same sermon series um, so that we're kind of pouring into each other and uh, learning from one another. And what he's calling this series, the phrase that he goes back to again and again at his church is he says the Ten Commandments are rules for the liberated life. They're rules for the liberated life. I love that, right? God wants his people to stay free. And this is so massively different than how we tend to think of these things. First of all, um, there's, there, there's a couple of, of Objections. One is, but isn't the Christian faith about relationship and not about rules, right? That's something that we can throw at it. And that, that works as far as it goes, but there's no relationship that doesn't have some kind of rules embedded into it. Right? Like even, even a peer, even a friendship has a type of expectation that's there, whether stated or unstated, 
by the way, the emotionally healthy thing to do is to state those expectations. Um, and, and when those are violated, there is a break in that relationship. And so you can't just say, oh, we're friends. We lean into relationship. We have no rules for one. You might say that. Let an unspoken rule get violated. And all of a sudden you realize, ooh, there are some rules here. Right? And the more that those are stated and clear, the healthier relationship is going to be. The more that that relationship is not a peer relationship, but is one where someone either has more authority, more wisdom, more knowledge than the other, the more loving it is to provide rules to the other. Right? Here I'm talking about a parent and a child. You are not a great parent if you have no rules for your children. You do them a disservice to say, oh, so how do you guys do this in your house? You're like, we're not about rules in our house. We're about relationship. Right? You never say that. Because you know that you owe your kids some boundaries, right? Where is it? True freedom requires clearly communicated boundaries and constraints. I would say true loving relationships require clearly communicated boundaries and constraints, especially the more that the dynamic is a superior to an inferior. We owe our kids clarity on what we expect from them. The distance between a child and a parent is infinitely less than the difference between us and an all-knowing, perfect, absolutely holy God. So the fact that he would hand down clarity on this is what I expect of you is a sign not of his mm, mm, judgment. It's a sign of his goodness. It's a sign of his grace. It's a sign of him understanding, I know you can't do this on your own. So I'm going to make it clear what I expect of you and what it looks like to stay free. The other thing, we were just talking about this uh, preparing for a discipleship course. We were talking about what are some of like the theological uh, huge bombs that just completely forever change your view of, of God in, in, in a good way. And I said, I think for me, it was when I realized that obedience to God is, um, is this. Tim, put up that slide with like those, those three passages. This is how the New Testament talks about the law. Therefore, whoever relaxes, this is Jesus himself. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's an endorsement of the law. Jesus is saying, yes, law is good. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The law of liberty, right? God wants his people to stay free. Therefore, the law is one of liberty. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, not from having a law, not from obedience. He redeemed us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous, not for freedom and doing whatever they want, who are zealous for good works, who are zealous to obey God. Now look, there's some nuance here. There's some weird stuff that Paul says about the law and the law brings death and all. We're gonna talk about that as we go through this series. But obedience to God, Living in concert with how God calls us to live is the great gift of salvation. What it is not is the cost of salvation. Here's how I live my life. I don't know about you, right? A kid who grew up singing weird songs in church. Here's, here's what that became in my heart. God did really something really amazing for me. He gave his only son. He died. He went all the way into death. The least I can do is to obey him and what obeying him is, is it's doing all the stuff that I know will make me miserable 
because it's all the not good life stuff as the world defines it. And that's the point, is it really shows God how much I appreciate what he did when I renounce all the really fun stuff and do the boring Christian stuff, right? That's what it became in my heart. That is not great motivation to then go and be holy because you know who's in debt in that? I'm in debt. I'm in debt forever to an eternal God. That's not the sequence of the gospel. I don't obey in order to be accepted. I don't obey in order to prove how much I appreciate what's already been done. All that's sealed. I'm accepted. I'm in. I'm saved. I'm free. I'm chosen. And part of the freedom that has been won for me is now I'm empowered to live the actual free life. It's a gift. It's not the cost. Obedience is the gift of salvation. It's not what we return after the fact to God as though God says, well, look at what I did for you. Now let's see if you can pay it back, right? I think it changes everything when we really believe that this is the good life, that this is what freedom actually looks like. One more thing that I'll say about the Ten Commandments. Hopefully you're not surprised that this is the last thing I'm going to say. Like everything else in the scriptures, ultimately the Ten Commandments are most deeply about Jesus himself. Insofar as they reveal who God is, Jesus comes and embodies that perfectly. Insofar as the Ten Commandments say, this is what God is like. You know how Jesus who comes and says, if you have seen me, seen how I relate to the world, you've seen the Father. Because who is Jesus if not the one who perfectly fulfills the Ten Commandments? No other gods before you, perfectly obedient to his Father. Don't bow down and worship anything. Think of Jesus in the temptation where the devil's like, bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdom of the world. Doesn't do it, right? Don't bear the name of God in vain. We have to talk about what that means. But Jesus perfectly bears the name, perfectly reveals who God is to the world. He calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I am the Sabbath. The Sabbath pointed to me all along. Honor your father and mother. Who is Jesus if not the one perfectly obedient to his father? Don't murder. Not only does he not take up arms, he himself is murdered. And all the rest, right? You can go through them. Don't commit adultery, right? He's perfectly faithful to his bride, right? This is the language that the New Testament picks up, that Jesus has won his bride, right? All of them fit so beautifully. There's no guile in his mouth. He doesn't revile anyone. When, when he is reviled, he doesn't answer in reviling. All of them, one by one. Why? It's not a mistake. It's not Jesus going, what's the next one, right? Like, I think that that's what we sometimes think Jesus' fulfillment is. He's kind of going like, he wakes up and he's like, Ooh, uh, this is the day to obey the seventh commandment. No, no, no. The, the commandments, they reveal who God is. Jesus is God incarnate, so of course he's going to fulfill these. Insofar as they are about the mission of God, that it's not just about the obedience of God, it's the blessing of the world, what does Jesus come other than be perfectly obedient so that the world might be blessed? Right? That blessing to many nations that was promised to Abraham ultimately centers on the work and the salvation of Jesus. And then who is Jesus if not the one who shows us what it means to be truly human, to be truly free? There was no human being who ever lived who was more free than Jesus. And there was no human being who was more obedient than Jesus. Meditate on that. Let that sink deeply into your mind and heart as we go through this series together. And of course, it is Jesus who not only fulfills the Ten Commandments, it is Jesus who actually empowers us to ourselves step into 
the life that this calls us to. Because if there's one elephant in the room when we work through these Ten Commandments, it is how consistently and how deeply the people of God disobeyed these commandments in the rest of the Old Testament story. And so we didn't just need a law handed down. We need, needed one who could fulfill it for us and then somehow, some way, empower us to be people who actually walk in true freedom. This is what Jesus uniquely offers. As disobedient people, as, as people who, if we were totally honest, would read these Ten Commandments and if, if our identity, if our standing before God was based on how well have you done in those, even just in the last two or three days, Every single one of us would be utterly crushed by it. What is our hope? How can we stand? We stand because there is one who has come and not only fulfilled the law and could have danced into the presence of God unscathed because he perfectly fulfilled what God asked for him. Instead, he says, no, part of my obedience is to then take on the penalty that you and I deserve to pay, and yet he chose to pay for our disobedience to the Ten Commandments. He takes that upon himself, dies the death that we deserve to die. Then it doesn't even end there because he doesn't just die. He rises to new life and then offers that new life to us and says, I will make you one who can live free in this world. I can make you one who stumblingly, imperfectly, but bit by bit over time like that acorn in the soil will grow into who God created you to be. Never perfectly, never fully this side of his ultimate act of resurrection, but nonetheless over time freer and freer and freer. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why even the Ten Commandments themselves are good news. They're good news because they ultimately point us to the one who in himself became good news for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these ten words. We thank you for that you are God who reveals himself, who wants to be known. We thank you that you most of all revealed yourself in your son, whose work and death and salvation we now celebrate by coming to this table. God, give us ears to hear over this series what you want to say to us both individually and corporately as a church, God. What it looks like for us to live more free than we are now so that we might be about your purposes in the world and bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.